Welcome back to the FNF Coaches Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. We continue to produce daily content on FNFcoaches.com. Visit the site to check out stories about how the pandemic is impacting football across the country. Also, subscribe to the FNF Coaches Podcast on your preferred platform. We're on Spotify, iTunes, TuneIn, and Google Play. We're excited to welcome today's guest, someone many high school coaches are already familiar with. Coach Dan Casey is the head coach at St. David's School in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you follow Coach Casey on Twitter, at Coach Dan Casey, you know he's an offensive guru when it comes to X's and O's. He can often be seen breaking down concepts seen in pro and college football with a few tweets and a quick video clip. He also has a website designed to help coaches become more creative with their systems. That's CoachDanCasey.com. Coach, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you having me. Well, I love following your Twitter feed. We've uh, we've been following it for a while now, and it's great to learn more about schemes and play design, play des- play design. Excuse me. Um, how do you keep up? With, I mean, you you seem to have you have a top five every week where it's a mix of you know NFL and college stuff. How do you keep up with all of it and see all the different schemes and all across the country? Totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me. You know, I got my first coaching job when I was 24 years old. Um, and so I just, I knew, you know, next to nothing, having played in high school and played in college, played in some different systems, I, I knew from a player's perspective. But in terms of really understanding the X's and O's of the game, I, I did not have a, a deep understanding of the game. And so I really wanted to to learn, particularly from some older coaches and from more experienced coaches along the way. And unfortunately, where I was at, I was really the only on-campus coach. We had some community coaches that were helping out uh, here and there, but I didn't really have anybody down the hall that I could go talk to and say, hey, I don't understand, uh, you know, what's a good route concept to beat cover three. Um, So I had to go find that. And Twitter has become kind of a community of coaches for me where um, I have so many coaches reach out to me and help me out with so many different things. And I definitely try and return the favor. And, you know, it's, it it is time consuming to a degree, but you know, the way I keep up with it, particularly in season is I don't really watch games live at all. I usually try and um, spend the weekends with my family as much as I can. And then I'll, you know, get up early Monday morning and, and zip through some, some highlights, um, watch through some games of uh, particularly of offenses I'm, I'm very interested in um, and kind of zip through them. I miss the commercial I miss all that and uh, it lets me kind of digest a lot of football without actually having to sit in front of TV for very long so that's just kind of my my way of doing things Um, I I'm very much of the mind that I want to be learning something every day and so this is kind of a way for me to stay sharp stay fresh um, stay connected with other coaches both in and out of season Um, and you know I'm I'm the only on-campus football coach here at at St. David's um, on the varsity level at least and so it's kind of a way for me to, to glean some different ideas um, for the coming week and uh, just stay connected with, with uh, all those great coaches out there. So you actually watch, watch it on TV first, and then you'll pull clips from – do you pull them from Huddle, or where, where are you getting the clips from? Yeah, so I have uh, just a great network of coaches that will send me um, cut-ups and, and clips and different things like that. And, uh, you know, over time, built up – kind of a library and a, a contact list of people to, to get in touch with. So I, I just kind of try and during the season, I'm more skimming um, just to see what's interesting to me, maybe keep an eye on some of the trends that are happening. Um, and then the off season is really where I dive in deep and try and really understand what people are trying to do and um, how they're trying to solve certain problems. I've always said that, you know, coaching is 100% problem solving. 
And so really we're just trying to provide our athletes with the best solution for any given opponent or any given situation. So I really am just very interested in how other coaches are solving problems because the chances are I'm going to come across those same problems one day and I need to figure out how to solve them. So um, the, the, during the season, I'm kind of keeping an eye on trends and, and skimming a lot, but then in the off seasons where I really get to study and that, I really enjoy that part of things. Yeah. Now going back to your, your childhood, you said you played football growing up all the way through college and then start, you got your first coaching job at 24 was, was football a big part of your life growing up? Where did you play? Yeah. So I grew up in uh, central Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, you know, football, is king there I would say um but I grew up my my parents moved moved a lot when I was a kid and my dad's from New York um and so I grew up you know a basketball kid I you know played basketball year round um but always stuck with football in the fall it was something I always did even if I would go um and and play basketball in the mornings before football practice I always thought I was going to be a basketball player my dad was a basketball coach um you know my whole family is is a basketball family Um, But really, I just fell in love with the game of football. I think I fell in love with um, the strategy, um, the camaraderie. When I was um, growing up, like I said, I moved a lot. And I ended up going to three different high schools in three different states in three different years. Um, And football was always a constant for me. I would show up, you know, for, for summer conditioning and training camp. And I would walk in on the first day of class with 60, 70, 80 friends. Um, And so football, I think more than, more than even the game and enjoying the game, I think just realizing how important it is for particularly young men and young women to have a team um, surrounding them that, that they feel like they're, they're growing with and pursuing a common goal together with. And football was just always that for me. Um, And so when it came time, I I really made the decision that I wanted to continue playing at the college level and had an unbelievable experience uh, playing at Davidson College, just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. And all the guys that stood up there with me on my wedding day were, were college teammates of mine. And so it's, it's one of those things. It's just, it's just a really special um, fraternity and, and the camaraderie is unlike anything. Yeah. Steph Curry went to Davidson, didn't he? He did, man. That's our claim to fame. We yeah. love Steph. We love yeah. Steph. Were you there when he was there? Or? So I, I just missed him during his playing career. But the cool thing about Steph is uh, that he, he really takes, uh, he takes a lot of things seriously, obviously um, his philanthropy, his, uh, he's he's very invested in what's going on socially in the country, all these things. But he's also very invested in his own um, academic success and and finishing his degree. So even though he left Davidson early to go to the NBA, when they had a lockout, he came back and took some classes. And I was in a class with him, and he showed up every day and did the work. And it was just really impressive for me to see somebody at that high of a level um, still committed to excellence in everything he did, including academics. That's amazing. Yeah. No, I I remember early in his career he wasn't. He wasn't like MVP Steph Curry, you know, he, right. he had some, I think his ankle or foot injuries exactly. and he was, uh, and then it just kind of happened where all of a sudden he's, you know, hitting he took off, man. six or eight threes a game. That was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I became a bandwagon Warriors fan. No, no doubt about it. That's awesome. Um, so now did you play, what, what position did you play when you were playing? So I was a, I was a high school quarterback. Um, mm-hmm. I think like a lot of people, I, I gravitated toward that position. Um, but you know, to be honest, I think I knew pretty early on that I did not have the skill set to translate that to the college level. When I showed up at Davidson, um, even though we didn't have a ton of success while I was there, I realized that the talent level at the quarterback position was was not where I belonged anymore. I did not have the arm strength uh, or, or really the physical capabilities to do that anymore. But I really found a home on defense um, at safety. And in, in some ways, it's kind of the quarterback of the defense where you're able to see things, you're able to 
um, still play that game of cat and mouse a little bit, disguising coverages. And it was just fascinating to me. I loved getting to play safety. I loved the physical component of the game. And, um, yeah, I just, I just had a blast playing defense and, and, uh, you know, that's, it's something that even though I'm more on the offensive side of the ball as a coach now, I, I always am thinking from a defensive perspective, what would I not like to face if I was playing safety against this offense? Yeah, yeah, I would think that'd be a great experience having played both quarterback and safety, you know, where you're thinking on both sides of the ball when you're scheming things up. Like, how, you know, what is the defense going to be th- thinking when they see this look? And, you know, how can we kind of throw them off by by putting some misdirection in or, you know, other things that are going to yeah. make it more difficult for them? That's 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 probably Absolutely. a good background for doing what you're doing now. Absolutely. Um, now, were, were you a head coach at 24, or how, how did your career start as a coach? Yeah, so I um, finished up in college. Um, I ended up with, I, you know, this is pretty rare. I ended up with two medical red shirts for, for different injuries that I had at Davidson. Um, so I got six years of eligibility. So I came out kind of late and was really hoping to continue playing at the next level. That was a dream of mine. I think that's a dream for a lot of guys. Um, and gave it my best shot, worked out for some teams in Canada, but I just, you know, wasn't talented enough to continue playing at the next level. And, you know, that's, that's, I think that's always a hard thing that sets in on every particularly football player is realizing, you know, what do you do at the end of your career? I'd spent 18 years on teams every fall. Like my, it it was like my internal clock was set to training camp and the season and the playoffs, everything was just kind of revolving around even the off-season conditioning schedule of football. I was so used to it. Um, so it was really jarring for me when I when I got out and I was done playing and I didn't didn't have a team that fall. Um, and I ended up going to grad school, um, trying to kind of figure out what would be next in my life. And, man, I just missed the game so much. Um, I just wanted to be back with a team so badly. So I sent out an email to probably, you know, 50 different high schools in the area where I was taking grad classes at, um, and didn't get a single response. I think that's probably the case for a lot of high school coaches that, or young young players that are just finishing up that want to break into high school or college coaching is you just, you don't get many responses. And so I was like, man, this is going to be harder than I thought. And then, you know, right before the season started, um, got a call from the school, St. David's actually, um, and they asked if I'd be interested in coming on, on board and being an assistant coach and got my foot in the door, helped out with the DBs a little bit that first year. And um, we had a transition in the program and I, you know, was fortunate enough to get to interview for the head coaching job. And at 24, I was, I was the head coach. So I guess 23, I was an assistant 24. I was a head coach. And, um, yeah, it was definitely absolutely swimming in information and, and trying to figure out what was going on. But I think that learning experience for me was invaluable. Just really having to solve a lot of problems. Like I said. Yeah, that's amazing that it happened that quickly. Now, I think a lot of, of players when they graduate and, you know, they they have that um, sense that they want to make a career out of coaching, they usually get back in touch with their, their high school coach or somebody they were close with. Right. Did, why didn't you do that? Yeah, so, I mean, I was kind of, I was kind of all over the place and, you know, having played for um, – three different high schools in three different states um, in three different years. Um, you know, I, I had a range of experiences with people, um, but my most recent coach was, was not in the area where, where I was back at because um, oh, okay. I went to, went to school my senior year. I was just south of, um, of Charlotte, North Carolina, down in Rock Hill, South Carolina, where the new Panthers um, training facility is going to be located, great city, um, and then ended up going over, going up to Davidson and then for grad school went over to Duke University. Um, and so, looked around in Durham a little bit and then ended up landing at, at a spot in Raleigh. And it's, you know, it's been a great fit for, 
for me and, and my family for sure. And, um, you know, the, the, what I'm fortunate for is that, you know, this community has really embraced me and let me learn along the way. And I think particularly the, the athletes have, you know, that I get to coach have, have really bought in and, and done everything we asked for them. So from them. So, uh, I'm really, really appreciative of that. Yeah, that's great. What size is the school and what's, what type of football community is it? Yeah. So it's, it's a very small school. It's a private, um, Episcopal school in the, kind of the heart of downtown Raleigh. Um, and we actually play eight man football. So not okay. a lot of people know much about eight man football. Um, it's a great way for smaller schools to still have a football culture. Um, I think if we were playing 11 man, we'd probably um, go in and out of having um, enough numbers to field a team each year, but we've really carved out a niche here in eight man football. We have a really competitive league here in North Carolina with some, some really talented schools up and down the coast um, and, and into, into the, the heart of the state. Um, it's competitive every year. Um, there's some great players coming out of here, kids going to college every year. We've had, at least two kids go to college um, from eight-man football every year since I've been here. So uh, it's it's really cool. There's a lot of talent. It's a wide-open game. You'll see games in the 50s, 60s, 70s. We, in fact, just a uh, just the other day, a t- team in our league beat another team in our league like 112 to 88. Wow. So just wild, wide-open games. Um, but it's a lot of fun. You again, it's you know football at its most basic form in the sense that. Um, you need to be really good at blocking, really good at tackling, really good at the fundamentals. Because if you miss a tackle in eight-man football, it's it's a touchdown. Right. So uh, there's a lot of lot of pressure on the kids, but they really rise to the occasion. That's great. So I was going to ask where you, what the football scene is in North Carolina this fall. Obviously, you're playing games. What was it like to to get the return to football back? What type of safety precautions did you have to put in place? Yeah, I mean, I think we were we were pretty fortunate in the sense that, um, you know, most of the state is not getting to play right now. Um, the, the public schools in North Carolina aren't going to get to play until the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in a private school league. And so we were able to to really set up some um, some guidelines that allowed us to return to play. And we missed the first couple weeks of the season and have had to be really careful um, with our acclimation and, you know, no fans at games, um, you know, everything socially distanced as much as we can. Um but we're fortunate enough to get to play, and I think everyone in our league has d- just done a phenomenal job of being respectful of each other and taking care of um, taking care of each other and uh, making sure we've got um, you know testing done and, and making sure we've got everybody healthy heading into the game. So so far we've we've only gotten to play two games so far, but uh, we're really hoping to finish out an abbreviated season and get into the playoffs. And uh, but it's it's been uh, it's been a whirlwind because I. I was pretty sure we weren't going to get to play. And then, you know, I got, got a call that we were going to get to play and we had two weeks to get ready. So I think a lot of coaches in America right now are kind of figuring out um, how to squeeze all that game planning and preparation into a shorter amount of time. And so we had to simplify things and um, do our best to make sure our, our guys can play fast and, and just play to the best of their ability and, and also not, not take themselves too seriously. Like this is unprecedented times and we still want them to have fun and, um, and we want them to enjoy, especially our seniors, enjoy their senior year because uh, we, we truly are fortunate to get to play even one game this year. And so I'm, I'm really appreciative of all the work that's gone in to make it happen. Yeah, and I'm sure the players are thrilled too. I mean, it's interesting because when we were uh, before the season, we did uh, uh, one of our magazines, one of our publications was kind of like the COVID edition. And I was, totally. su- I was surprised because... It was almost, you know, I figured all coaches would want to come back and play this fall because that's the way it always works. And, you know, they think that's the safest thing for the kids. But it was 
a pretty relative, you know, I wouldn't say it was 50-50, but maybe 70-30 in favor of coaches wanted to come back and play. But 30 sure. were like, you know, with a condensed season and losing games and, you know, shorter uh, time periods. And they were like, you know, maybe we get the virus figured out a little bit more by the spring. Right. There were a fair amount of coaches that wanted uh, the spring. Now that you've you've been back and been able to play two weeks uh, or two games, how has your uh, opinion on it evolved? Do you think, do you, do you feel like it's the right thing to do? Man, you know, that's, that's such a tough question. I think every school is probably dealing with unique circumstances. We um, are at a smaller school, so we're able to keep things contained a little bit better. Um, our students have been very responsible this year. We, we've been able to be back in person as well, which, again, we're fortunate to be able to do that. A lot of schools are still meeting virtually. Um, you know, I, I will say it's, it's very stressful as a coach to, to um, you know, at the beginning of the year, we had some kids in quarantine um, just to be extra safe. And we, were, we had one practice where we had five kids there. Um, and so you, you know, you, what do you do as a coach, um, when you're trying to prepare for a season, trying to get ready for a game? So there's definitely been, um, very stressful moments, but we've, you know, in football, you're always adapting and overcoming. I think most of the time we're used to a pretty more, a more normalized schedule, but we had our kids joining in on zoom and they would um, be in on the team meeting and, um, catching up on the playbook and making sure they had all of our installs and, you know, our guys have done a, a great job adapting as, as best they can, but it's hard to say. I mean, I can see both sides of it. I can see the coaches that are really ready to get back out there. I can see the coaches that are still apprehensive because it is stressful. You do worry, have we done enough conditioning to make sure our guys are safe going out there on, on the field on Friday night? And so, you know, one of the things that we do is we just take as many precautions as we can throughout the game, not only with the virus, but also from a conditioning standpoint, making sure, um, you know, we t- we kind of have to, allocate our timeouts to get guys extra rest throughout the game. We talked to the officials about, um, you know, making sure we're not pushing these guys too hard physically because, um, you know, as a coach, you, you normally have a certain level of conditioning that you head into the game with. And the reality is when, when guys are sitting around for four or five months, it's really difficult to achieve that level of conditioning in two or three weeks of practice. So we've just had to be um, as accommodating as we can be. And I think all of the coaches in our league have, have been the same. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to uh, talk to you about some of the content that we all see on Twitter. Um, like I said, you, you know, we love following your Twitter handle. It's a great, great way to learn about, uh, you know, offensive football and football in general. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of influencers, like, you know, personally, I love watching, you know, Andy Reid's screen game or, you know, Lincoln totally. Riley's offense or, you know, Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, both those, you know, the run games and sweeps and, you know, it's, it's great watching those influencers. Who would you say, and we saw, you know, obviously Lane Kiffin's offense, you know, lit up Alabama the other day. Who who would you say you are posting about most often? Who are the biggest influences, influencers when it comes to X's and O's? Oh, man, that's that's such a great question. I think, you know, for me, it, it's in, it's interesting. A lot of times the, the guys that I'm digging in most on are, are usually relevant to the to the type of uh, I guess leaning in the direction of the type of offense we're trying to run each year. And when you're at a smaller school, you have different talent coming through the door each year. Some years you have an incredibly talented team. You can call anything and be successful. Other times you're kind of scheming up five yard gains. Um, and so for me, I think each, each year the offenses that I'm watching most closely are the ones that somewhat resemble a little bit of what I'm, I'm trying to do with, with my athletes. Um, and we try and have a, a flexible enough system to be able to accommodate the, 
you know, the talent that we have on, on our roster any given year. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, obviously I think no matter, no matter who's playing quarterback, Lincoln Riley does about as good a job as anyone. Um, whether it's, you know, scheming up run game, play action, uh, boot RPO. I mean, he, he has, he has it all. And I think he's, you know, someone that a lot of coaches aspire to, um, to really be able to have a, a system like his. Um, and it, it's, it's just in, incredibly uh, unique and adaptable. It, it's imp- almost impossible to prepare for because they have so many different options um, off their core plays. Um, I think, you know, Cliff Kingsbury is another one. Again, mm-hmm. we're kind of staying in the air raid family here. Yeah. Um, he's another one who I think has really um, diversified a lot of what he's doing. Um, obviously, he's got some of those core air raid um, philosophies and, and core air raid plays, but you, you see all kinds of stuff. And I think his willingness to, to incorporate, you know, I'll see a play that a, a D three team will run. And then, you know, I'll see him run something similar. And I'm like, man, he's, you can tell he's just digging, um, digging through uh, the game and, and finding the best stuff. And, and he always kind of brings it to light. And obviously you can, you can go down the line with a lot of these different guys, but I think the more I've, the more I've been in coaching, the more I've just realized how important some of the tried and true um, principles of, you know, triple option football or um, West Coast offense and even going back to, you know, BYU and Lavelle Edwards. And just you start to trace these lines back um, of who's had influence in the game. Um, and and that's that's probably what I've tried to do most of is try, try to follow these coaching trees to the best of my ability and see, um, you know, wh- what are the origins of this and then how are they – meshing other concepts into what they're doing and man there's there's a ton of good football happening right now I think it's a really exciting um, time to be a football coach because there's so much uh, innovation happening and we have so much access to this the film and the information and um, coaches I think are more accessible now than ever and so it's hard to say any one coach that I you know say is my hero but I, I can see the merit in in so many different systems and I think if you ultimately and I've talked with this a little bit with some of my, my closest coaching friends. I think the real innovation in coaching is not necessarily um, the plays you're calling, but it's the way you're teaching the game to your athletes. Um, and I think that there's some incredible teachers out there right now who are um, able to communicate schemes to their players in a way that those guys can really understand. I think Ryan Day is a phenomenal teacher at Ohio State, yeah. obviously Lincoln Riley and others. Um, but I think the real innovators aren't necessarily the ones coming up with the crazy plays, but the ones that are really teaching, you know, in an understandable way. So their, their athletes can take it to the field um, and not, not be overthinking when they're executing. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned that BYU uh, kind of um, timeline and that was, I was an Eagles fan or I am an Eagles, Philadelphia Eagles fan. And now totally. Andy Reid's kind of stems from that. I think he, Absolutely. I think he played under Lavelle Edwards at BYU, but yeah. And, and had... coached with him for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh, what, one thing you, I just thought of while you were um, answering that question, when you said, you know, you'll see Cliff Kingsbury, who uh, it's been really fun watching him with Kyler Murray. But when you see, um, you know, him use a play that he saw D3. And I was thinking like your Twitter account would be a good resource in your website for coaches who are looking to steal stuff. And there's no shame, obviously, in no, no, not at all. And, and stealing stuff. Everybody wants to find out what's new and what's, have you heard from any coaches that you, that really kind of blew you away that were like, Hey, I'm following you on Twitter and, and kind of taking, taking stuff from other coaches and other schemes. 
Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear stories all the time about um, people, you know, snagging something, whether it's off my Twitter or there's other guys out there that are doing a great job sharing the game as well. Um, I've heard some, some great stories and, you know, some names that you're like, what are you doing? What are you doing on my Twitter? You, you have no business being on my Twitter. You're a way better football coach than I, I could ever dream of being. Um, but, but it's cool. I mean, I think one of the things that's, that's really neat is um, you're seeing more of a, it's a phrase that Ray Dalio uses a lot in his book principles, an idea meritocracy, like the best idea wins. And uh, I think you're seeing that more and more with football coaches now that it doesn't really matter what level it comes from. It doesn't really matter um, any of that. It, all that matters is, you know, how do we get to the best idea and make sure the best idea wins each week? And so I think it's, uh, it's, it's exciting to see that. And I think, um, you know, it, it's been fun for me to be able to interact with coaches. And, and again, I mean, 98% of what I'm posting is stolen from somebody else. And as coaches, we're all, we're all plagiarists uh, to some extent. And uh, what I what I try and do to the best of my ability is is kind of create a little bit of a bibliography and give people a little idea of where things are coming from and tracing those origins. I think that's just really interesting to me. I think I'm a little bit of a historian at heart. Um, and so being able to see the evolution of the game happen is, is really exciting for me. And it's something that that energizes me when I get to when I get to look at the game. Um, but, yeah, we, we all steal stuff from people. I think, um, you know, a lot of times um, the, the people that are able to, to steal the be- all the best stuff and, and implement it in a, in a really well-taught way, those are the ones that are having success right now. It's not necessarily that they're coming up with everything on their own. It's that they're stealing from the right people and sourcing from the right people and uh, just implementing and executing really well. Yeah. How is the, in terms of the pandemic, like I would think, you know, initially, like there's no shortage of, of video and content that you can provide to coaches because you can pull plays from you know 2008 or 2015 and say hey look at this on the other hand you know obviously in the last six weeks or so games at at all levels nfl college or and high school are starting to come back and you're able to get fresh content but you know from like march to august i wonder was there the same appetite for coaches to grab content or look at content if they're if they're not playing games and they're not scheming things up for that week how is it? How has the pandemic affected your content? Oh man, I mean, this is what I love about football coaches. Football coaches are obsessed twenty four seven, three sixty five. So <laughs> yeah. there's no there is no off season when you're when you got a whiteboard in your office. Um, that's that's what I love about football coaches. And honestly, I would say for, from my personal perspective, while I enjoy keeping up with the trends in season, all of my most interesting stuff and all of my best conversations come in the off season with other coaches as they're preparing for for their next season and the plan for what they're going to do next year. Um, and, and so, you know, we're all busy during the season and yeah, we may steal a play here and there, but the real, um, the real game changer, I think for coaches happens in the off season, you get to sit down with a coach and talk them through a scheme. And all of a sudden, you know, they're figuring out how to implement that full scale in the off season, as opposed to maybe taking a play here or a play there. So, you know, I think in terms of content, just, you know, looking at it on the surface, coaches love being able to grab a trick play here or there in the season, but in the off seasons where you can really dive in deep and, and dig into to schemes. And that's where you see like a lot, a lot of high school coaches are having to make full set, full sale scheme changes in the off season based on the personnel they have. And so, you know, I love being able to help guys figure out what's going to be most effective uh, moving forward uh, for their for their situation uh that's something that i just really enjoy getting to do getting to sit down with these coaches from all over the country 
um, and talk through stuff with them. And so the off season is prime time for me. I, I love getting to, to have those in-depth conversations and see guys make these big changes that um, can ultimately benefit their, their athletes. Yeah, I would think the ability to be flexible and uh, kind of morph the offense from year to year is even more uh, important when you're playing eight man because you know it's it's not like you just some of these bigger programs, 150 kids, you can say, oh, we run our scheme every year and we kind of plug in the right. guys, and it's a little bit more of a feeder pad. Like they know at the youth level what they want to run at the high school level, so they're practicing exactly. in a certain way, but. Eight man. What I, I should have asked you earlier when you said uh, part a lot of the content that you grab is related to the scheme that you're trying to run. What are you running this year? <laughs> uh, so we we mess with a little bit of everything. Um, in the past, we've kind of been, uh, I guess you could say more more west coast a little bit with, uh, but we're obviously out of the gun. We go from the pistol. We did a lot of wide zone, a lot of boot, um, some gap schemes mixed in. Um, and we've, you know, based on our personnel, we've kind of shifted a little bit more, introducing some spread triple concepts. We're, I, I wouldn't say we're um, a full-scale uh, flex bone team or anything like that. It's tough to do that in eight-man football. Um, but we, we definitely introduced some of those principles. And um, we do a little bit of everything. And, and honestly, I think the biggest thing for me is, and I always joke about this, I can only install about 2% of what I post on Twitter. So 98% of what I'm posting is just, you know, junk that gets flung out in the atmosphere. And if people like it, great. But I need to focus on, you know, what my guys can understand and execute um, to the best of their ability. And so a lot of times I, I, I felt prey to this early on in my coaching career was trying to install everything. I was so excited about these different schemes, um, but it ended up just being a, a mess um, of too many, too many ideas that didn't really connect with each other. So we really try and keep our offense as cohesive as possible and really give the guys ownership to make a lot of reads and adjustments um, off of off of the different things we're doing. So we give them a lot of freedom. Um, sometimes we even let our quarterback call a whole series where he'll just be out there and he'll get the he'll, he has access to the whole offense and gets to call a whole series. And I think in, in an ideal world, I'd love to be as hands off as possible and really let those guys just play on Friday night because um, they they really have taken ownership of it and understood it. So I guess all that to be said, we, we run kind of like a spread, spread triple offense, but we, we chuck it around a little bit too. And we do all kinds of different things and get creative. But um, the core of what we do is, uh, is really, you know, kind of setting up our, our play action pass game with a diverse run game. It was, uh, it's interesting when um, you mentioned trends earlier and that, you know, you're always kind of studying to see what trends are popping up from year to year. It's been interesting for me. I live in uh, Massachusetts, so yeah. um, the Patriots are the NFL team that's televised every week, and um, absolutely they are. It's it's been interesting this year to watch their offense change. You know, for the last twenty years, it's kind of been a similar, even you know Charlie Weiss and Josh McDaniels. Like it's been that kind of cr- short crossing routes and kind of playing to Tom Brady's accuracy and his for strengths. Sure. Um, and it's been really interesting this year to see that offense just morph into more of an RPO scheme with Cam Newton. and Totally. Um, but I don't feel like the RPO is a trend. I feel like that was a trend maybe, you know, five years ago. What what tr- Are there any trends that you see popping up this year that coaches should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think one thing that everyone's seeing right now is um, the use of formation and motion. Uh, the core plays are roughly the same. You're going to see a lot of the same stuff. Um, but the teams I think that are having a lot of success are the ones that are getting in 
um, formation unbalanced, line unbalanced, formation into the boundary, and using pre-snap motion not just to, um, you know, kind of understand, oh, are the, is the defense in zone or man, but really to execute the play. So, you know, whether you're talking about the 49ers using um, fly sweep um, tagged onto some of their run concepts or, you know, different orbit motions, you know, the Ravens motioning in their, their H-back and kicking out the D-end when they run split zone, you know, different things like that. I think the teams that are having a lot of success are using motion a lot and really using formation a lot, uh, whether it's formation unbalanced or formation into the boundary. Um, and that's both at the college and the pro level. I think probably more so at the college level, um, just because you can create a little bit more chaos because you don't have quite as much uh, time to prepare, you know, in terms of, you know, those kids are still taking classes. So you, you, they're not professionals quite yet. So you can create a little more chaos at the college level and certainly the high school level. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you're seeing some of that. I think, um, you know, it, it's interesting. There's, there's a lot of different ways to move the football. And uh, I think you, you see some trends pop up. Uh, but a lot of times what you'll see is that the, whoever started the trend has usually moved on by the time everybody else is there, um, which is, you know, I, I love seeing kind of who's on the cutting edge and whether they thought it was worth keeping or not. Um, so I think as my, my advice for coaches usually is, um, you know, pay attention to the trends for sure, but make sure you know um, what's working. And if people are moving on from trends, ask yourself why, and you may want to follow suit if, uh, if things aren't, aren't really being effective. Right. Yeah, no, it's funny that you mentioned the pre-snap uh, motion because I was reading, like I said, I'm an Eagles fan, and I was reading, somebody tweeted out, like, you know, one of these um, analytics-type Twitter uh, accounts was talking about NFL pre-snap motion, and yeah. they ranked the teams that do it. What percentage of the time, what percentage of the snaps do they have pre-snap motion? And the Eagles were, like, 30 out of 32 Right. And for me, I was like, why, why would, like Doug Peterson for me was always like a pretty innovative, especially, Absolutely. I feel like the further he gets away from being on Andy Reid's staff, like also the Eagles have a lot of offensive uh, line issues this year and that kind for of, sure. we know how for difficult sure. that can be when you have, you know, injuries all over the offensive yeah, line. Yeah, no, but I, but I think the, the interesting thing about the pre-snap motion is, you know, it looks, it looks cool when the Ravens are doing it, it looks cool when the Chiefs are doing it. Um, but if you look at, you know, if you go watch Navy, almost every play is there's going to be a pre-snap motion. Right. Um, and it may not look as dramatic and they may be under center, but you're seeing the same principles in a lot of these, what we'd consider maybe traditional or some would even consider them outdated offenses. But, you know, that's why I see the cyclical nature of these trends is, you know, in order to be innovative, you kind of have to go back. Um, and so that's something I'm obsessed with is not just staying quote unquote on the cutting edge, which I'm of course interested in. Um, but what's kind of the next thing, um, is the single wing going to pop back up is the, is are you know, are we going to be inundated with wing T concepts soon? You know, coaches kind of rediscover these things every few years and it works because no one's seen it in forever. Um, so, you know, one of the, one of the things that's kind of my pet obsession right now is, is watching teams run the split back veer. Now you're thinking like De La Salle back in the day, like, you know, when they had their hundred and some game win streak, um, but they were just running the split back veer and, you know, it's an offense that hasn't really been revived, particularly at the college level, but I'm just wondering, you know, what could that offense do if you kind of gave it a new paint job and, and rolled it out? I think it could do pretty well. So I think, you know, when, whenever I think of trends, I, I always try and look back to see what was effective and how it may map forward onto what's currently going on with football. 
I mean, it's funny to watch the Chiefs, too, because, you know, you talk about pre-snap motion, and a lot of teams, I think, use it as kind of like for the defense to give a tell, like, are they in man coverage, or, you know, are they going to play zone? You want you kind of want them to give up how they're, how they're going to defend it by putting a guy in motion, but then you'll, you'll turn on a Chiefs game, and they're, like, bringing Tyree Kill across the formation, and then they'll just hand it to him because they're, like, having a defensive back run in motion and get through all the mess in the middle oh, between absolutely. the offensive linemen and the linebackers. And you're just like, wow, yeah, Andy's a genius when it comes to calling these plays. But then you're like, well, wait a minute, he has Tyree Kill. I mean, that's kind of right. uh, <laughs> everybody wishes they had a guy running a 14-40. Yeah, the players actually running in motion make a big difference for right. sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I wanted to ask about, you know, obviously, you know, we're in the media business, we have a Twitter handle, and, you know, you try to get the engagement and the impressions and everything like that. What do you see as the key to establishing an audience? Is it just consistent content? Or what? what is it that you think has been successful for you? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think consistency is the key. Um, I think, you know, showing up and you know when people know that they're going to get something from you consistently i think that's um that's something that that they're all looking for and you know i think i've i've grown in that i've i've had a little bit more of a perspective recently um but but to be to be honest at the beginning i was just saying this is interesting this is cool i don't understand this can someone explain this to me um and i and i think that that was kind of where i got my start but but now i feel a little bit more confident in in my understanding of the game and um, the funny thing is you still, no matter how much football you watch or how many people follow you on Twitter, you still feel like you know nothing some days. And there are certainly days that I feel that way. Um, but but I think the key for me was I decided early on in my coaching career that I was, I was going to make my mistakes and I was going to make them out loud. Um, so I was going to say, this is what I think. And if people corrected me, I, would, I wouldn't get offended. I would just take that correction and keep rolling. And um, I think that has that has really benefited me. One thing I've learned about football coaches is, um, they're not shy. If they think you're wrong about something, they're going to let you know. So uh, they've always kept me in check and, and helped me understand the game better. And uh, but but I think there's there's kind of that that respect factor of knowing that I, I I'm trying my best to put in the work and understand the game and, and give them something that's useful to them as close to every day as possible. Um, that's just kind of been a rhythm that I've I've gotten into. And um, I definitely appreciate all the guys that have followed along and all the guys that have been um, generous with their time, attention, and, and generosity, um, for sure, in terms of just helping me get resources and, and understand the game better. There's, there's no one better out there than, than football coaches to, to help you understand things. Right. And I wanted to ask, I saw a few, I don't know if it was a couple of weeks ago, or you had tweeted out a picture of you, and I think it was about a six-month-old daughter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I have two. I have a seven- and six-year-old daughter. Um, how, how do you, how are you enjoying it and how do you plan to kind of keep them close to the program and, uh, have them share the experience of coaching football with you? Totally. Totally. I mean, it's been amazing, man. We, uh, we have two adoptive kids. One is uh, our son Zion's 18 months. Our daughter Ada is six months. And, uh, you know, being a dad has just totally shifted my perspective, um, in so many ways. Um, just understanding, you know, how important it is for, for me to be investing as much time as I can in their lives. And, and also just trying to be the best example I can be to my athletes as well as they, they see me interact with, with my kids. And unfortunately, you know, with COVID, they can't come to games or anything. Zion used to love coming to games last year and uh, running around on the field afterward, but I'm definitely looking forward to that getting to take place again. Uh, But I think for me, you know, I think one of the distinctions I always try to make is, 
you know, while I am, you know, I, I love being a football coach and, and definitely, you know, you know in, in working toward building that as my, as my profession, as my career, but more than anything, I want to build a life and I want to make sure that no matter what I do, um, you know, my family takes utmost priority. Uh, my, my wife and my kids are everything to me. And, um, you know, football is, is an amazing game, but it's, it's a game. And as much as I'm obsessed with it, uh, I always want to make sure I'm available to them. And so, you know, it's little things like, you know, not, not watching much football on the weekends and spending time with them as much as I can. And, um, even though I'm very invested in the game, just want, wanting them to always know that they come first. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a learning process. I can't say I do it perfectly every day, but I, I really love being a dad and, um, you know, being a football coach, I think in some ways is, is kind of like that where you just try and learn and grow and be the best that you can each day. Um, let your kids know you love them, let your players know you love them, um, and try and do right by them. And, uh, at the end of the day, you can, you can sleep at night cause you feel like you've, you've done everything you can. Yeah. There's no manual for it. That's right. I mean, they, they make obviously all those, you know, baby books, but you know, it's kind of a different experience for everybody. It's totally else. different, man. Yeah. And, yeah. and the same with coaching, like you, you can read someone's playbook, you can read their philosophy, but there's a difference between, uh, you know, between trying to download that and give it to your team versus, you know, coming up with it on your own. And I think a lot of times we learn from our mistakes, we learn from our failures and we develop, you know, slowly but surely over time we develop a, a list of things that we feel some principles that we feel like work well and i'm trying to do that as a dad just like i'm trying to do that as a coach yeah absolutely i think we all are well coach it's been great talking uh, i i thank you so much for being so generous with your time um yeah, i forgot to ask you who do you like in the georgia alabama game this weekend oh man uh i think uh, i think georgia's defense is phenomenal yeah. um you know i think if if Alabama can get some things fixed. I really like what they're doing offensively, um, really creative stuff. Uh, I think it's going to be a shootout. I, I w- I'm just going to lean Georgia slightly, but who knows, man. I think Nick Saban always finds a way to get his team so well prepared for those big matchups. So uh, it's a toss-up, but, you know, we'll see if the dogs can get it done. Yeah. Coach Saban didn't seem too happy after that, uh, letting up all those points last no, week. No, 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 no. Well, uh, like I said, thank you so much for joining us. You've been generous with your time, and um, I know you are in the middle of the season, so I really appreciate it. Uh, Visit Coach Casey's website. That's CoachDanCasey.com. Follow him on Twitter, as I'm sure you probably already do, at CoachDanCasey. Coach, thanks again for for this content, um, this podcast, and all other podcasts. You can go to our website and all other kind of pandemic-related pod, uh, not podcasts, but pandemic-related content, visit fnfcoaches.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.